today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Hi, this is Scott Thompson, and welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Feel free to subscribe, and please tell all your friends. Coming up on today's show, the city has voted to pursue an external review into why a 2013 report on the Red Hill was buried. Will we actually get to see this one? Hope so. Also, an update on the Jody Wilson-Raybould case. When will she be able to speak? And who do Canadians trust the most? You may be surprised. It's all coming up on today's podcast. Thanks for listening. The city has voted to pursue an external review into a 2013 report on the Red Hill and why that report was never brought forward. Uh, Hopefully with this review, external review, we'll actually get to see it this time. To talk more about all of this, Ryan McGreal is with us, editor of Raise the Hammer. He's uh, on now. Ryan, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Sure, Scott. Thanks for having me on. Uh, Your thoughts on council voting on this external review. Uh, Will we get to see this one this time? I mean, it's nice to do studies, but if they don't get uh, brought to the public, what's the sense? Oh, uh, absolutely. I mean, this review needs to be made public. Uh, You know, the uh, so the, the law that affects this is MFIPA, the Municipal Freedom of Information and Protection of Privacy Act. And uh, basically, according to the law, every document, every municipal document is public by default. The only thing that is not made public is if there's private uh, personal information of citizens, you know, residents, or if there's private confidential um, HR-related information about employees. Everything else is automatically public. So this idea of having a vote on whether to make it public or not, that is, it's a fundamentally misguided thing. You know, you run it through an MFIPA filter to make sure there's no sensitive personal information. Everything else gets published automatically without question. Uh, did council have any choice here? I mean, this is a no-brainer, no? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't see how they could have landed in any other place than where they did, which was basically saying the only way that we're going to have a fulsome and um, and believable uh, investigation into this is if we leave it to a, a more powerful outside independent body to come in and do it for us. Um, I'm not sure why it took them until three in the morning to decide that. That uh, was my next question. Apparently this went on forever. So what? Yeah, they, they, they went in camera for five hours. Uh, you know, I, I know many of my best decisions were made at three in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, oh. I mean, you know, we can only speculate as to what they. But that I think about. is cre- that's creatively, though, isn't it, Ryan? That's not necessarily from a business standpoint. <laughs> All right, <laughs> exactly. let's move on. Yeah. So, no, it, so it, what it, happened there? What, like, why was this such? Why was this so drawn out? I have no idea. I mean, I'm sure, uh, I'm sure, councillors had lots of questions. Uh, for for their um, you know the in-house city attorneys in terms of what they can and can't do what they should and shouldn't do what could expose them to liability uh, what's the right way to move forward I mean I, this is pure speculation because if you weren't um, you know one of the privy to that meeting mm-hmm. you have no idea it may have been five hours of them shouting at each other who knows you know I, I understand pizza was delivered at some point uh, so I mean it's it it speaks I think to the larger dysfunction at the city that a meeting that started at five in the afternoon ended at three o'clock in the morning and had a five hour stint in the middle that was hidden from the public. This is not a good way to run a city. And, and it, it just, just generally does not speak to a board of directors that really has its hand on what's happening at, at the city. 
Uh, does do those behind the scenes? I mean, you know, uh, apparently this was kept under wraps for some reason. We don't know. That's why the investigation. Uh, apparently, council didn't know anything about this. Um, is there somebody somewhere that knows what happened? I mean, can can everybody have turned a blind eye to this in some way? It's it's absolutely certain that somebody somewhere knows what happened. I mean, you know, these reports are not just, you know, dumped into some functional mailbox that nobody ever goes and looks at. And the Somebody's- other thing, too, is, Ryan, is that this was, this has always been a contentious issue. So this would have something, oh, it's coming, we have to keep our eyes open for this. No? Well, exactly. This isn't some sleepy report that... No. I mean, you know, there's, to, to be fair, council does periodically ask staff for reports uh, and then just forget about, them. you know, in a, six months, a year, two years goes by. And there's never any follow-up. I mean, I've been observing this for years. And the welcome to Hamilton sign. Need we say more? <laughs> sure. But again, oh, yeah, this is a front burner issue, and always has been. This is a big issue. Somebody received this report, and and I, I have a hard time imagining any other scenario aside from somebody saw this, and either on their own or in consultation with somebody else, made a decision. You know what? We need to, to suppress this. You know, this is going to have too many negative implications for too many people. It's better if nobody knows about this thing. Now, I mean, that is, that's just a, a fundamentally flawed strategy in this day and age. We live in a time now where you just can't get away with that stuff anymore. But yeah. people seem to keep trying over and over again. And the cover-up, as we know, is worse than the crime. Um, and obviously the public upset, and, and rightly so. Uh, what do they need in order to have confidence in what's going on? Because obviously, you know, even not knowing anything at this point, the speculation, the optics are terrible. So what, what needs to happen in the public's eye, in the public's opinion, uh, to resolve this? Right. Well, the first thing that needs to happen is that it needs to be an independent uh, an independent audit or investigation. And I think council understands that, you know, they, they've, uh, what they ended up deciding to do at three in the morning was to request outside legal advice on the right way to structure this independent, uh, investigation. It needs to be undertaken with a broad enough mandate to, um, to mop up all of the issues and threads that may be related to this. Uh, it needs to have the power to compel information and to compel testimony and whatever kind of, of uh, information gathering that's necessary. And it has to have the power to make a clear determination and recommendations, and that has to happen in public. We need to see what that end result looks like. If all of those conditions aren't met, even if, if it's all done with the best of intentions, there will be credible accusations of additional cover-up. Uh, Brad Clark, uh, uh, Ward 9 Councillor, says he prefers a judicial inquiry because it means the process will be public. Are you worried that something will happen here that will just be lip service? And, no, uh, it's all been studied. No, no, nothing to see here. I mean, or, or is this such a case that we have to find out what happened here? Yeah, I don't think they're going to get away with anything other than a full judicial inquiry. I think if they try to pass off something smaller or something more uh, prescribed, the pushback is going to be so huge. The outrage is going to be so sustained that they'll have no choice but to, to fold. They need to just do the right thing.
Uh, we touched on this yesterday. Uh, what about, or, or will this complicate issues, that being the fact that this is a, a city-owned highway as opposed to a provincially run highway? Uh, obviously, there's different jurisdictions, different responsibilities here. Will this be one of those situations where here's a reason why it should not be done this way? You know, uh, information, uh, critical information has been lost in the sauce here. Something like this should be under the guise of the province, something of this size. Yeah, I, I, I'm inclined to think so. Why, if we can jump track for a little bit, there's a reason why, for example, the LRT project is being run by Metrolinx, you know, a, a provincial agency yeah. that has the power and the expertise to do it properly. Um, you know, I'm somewhat of the opinion that we bit off a bit more than we could chew with the Red Hill Expressway. We were so determined to get this thing done. And, you know, if you, if you go back and catalog just the sheer number of problems we've had with this highway since it was built, you know, getting flooded several times a year, you know, in every one, well, you know, one in a hundred year storm that we get two or three a year now. Uh, there's, there's been a lot of, of, of what appear to be engineering and design and implementation related problems with this thing. The fact that the Red Hill has twice as high a rate of collisions as the link and with serious collisions and twice as many deaths. Like this, this, these are these are life and death issues, and there don't appear to be any really clear overarching standards that the city has been held to or even could be held to. It almost seems as if everybody, because like you said, this was such a contentious issue, there were, you know, everybody was trying to, uh, it was too much time spent trying to please everybody with every aspect of it, and unfortunately, things like safety or the efficiency of the highway weren't weren't priorities, it almost seems like. Well, it, it's hard to tell really what the priority was other than let's just get this thing built. And, uh, you know, certainly, you know, I mean, I, I remember at the time the highway won a number of environmental awards. Yeah. Which, which struck me as bizarre because it's a highway. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, I don't think the problem was that they tried to make it as sustainable as possible. And the problem is that they didn't use the right paving materials, obviously. Yeah. But again, um, as Dan McKenna was commenting on the show, as I mentioned earlier to you yesterday, that, um, you know, things like less noise means smoother pavement, uh, less spray. Those are all aesthetic features, but may compromise safety. Well, sure. And, and somebody making a decision that making this highway quiet is more important than making it safe. Yeah. I would ask again, how was that decision made? What decision matrix or, or rubric or, you know, weighted criteria were applied in order to make that decision? Was it just done as kind of a back of the envelope thing? Right. Was there a more rigorous process? Hopefully the judicial investigation will get to the bottom of some of these kinds of things. This could actually be a case study in the ways that a large project can go wrong yeah. and the kinds of safeguards you can put in place ahead of time to make sure that they don't happen. That's all we need, another example of what not to do. Uh, Ryan, can't let you go without asking your, your opinion on the LRT. Council uh, wants to ask the province who will pay for LRT if it goes over budget. Uh, Donna Skelly has al- already mentioned that you get a billion bucks, that's it. It's, if it goes over budget, uh, it's not the province's problem. Your thoughts on this and, and asking you know, uh, who will pay if it does go over? Sure. I mean, it's, it's, I guess it's always a good idea to get clarity. Again, this issue is always so politicized, and the people asking the questions always seem to have ulterior motives. Uh, I mean, under the project scope of what was agreed to with Metrolinx, if the cost went over budget, then the project scope would be reduced until it met the budget. I don't know why that isn't still the case. Um, I also don't understand how the project can go over budget, except that there has been so much political uncertainty and so much um, gamesmanship that if I'm a consortium looking to bid on this project, 
uh, in, and we've seen this happen in other cities that have had similar kinds of, of uh, churn and turmoil, they're actually going to start padding their bids right. with a risk premium because we're an unreliable partner. So if that's the case, that is our failure. Ryan McGrill's been with us, editor of Raise the Hammer, raisethehammer.org. To find out more, uh, the city voted to pursue an external review on the 2013 report of the Red Hill and why it was buried. Ryan, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you so much, Scott. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Alyssa Freeman is with us, public relations consultant, uh, principal at Alyssa Freeman PR. Hey, Alyssa, how are you today? Oh, I'm fine, Scott. How are you? I'm doing well. You know, the prime. Happy Valentine's Day. And happy Valentine's Day to you. (laughs) Are you celebrating? Yes, of course I am. Every day is uh, Valentine's Day with my husband. (laughs) No, see, the guys are supposed to say that, not the women. Yeah, well, you know. All right, good for you. (laughs) All right, uh, I'm going out tonight too, but I didn't really arrange it. Does that no, matter? We're having dinner in. I, I, See, I would rather do that. Mistake. I would rather do that. Yeah, All right. I know. Uh, that's like going out on New Year's Eve. It's like the busiest day of the year. Exactly. Yeah. And it's too expensive. And, I hear you. And lousy service. I'm so. coming to your house. Okay, no problem. All right. The PM does sunny ways very well, but he's a different animal when he gets agitated and backed into a corner. Have you noticed that? Gee, don't say no or don't disagree, because if you do, you're going to be demoted. And then if that person doesn't like it and she retaliates, oh, you're shocked? You're shocked? Honestly, when Justin Trudeau in 2015, when he was, you know, sworn in as prime minister, remember he was standing there with his half female cabinet and they said, gee, you have so many, you know, women uh, in cabinet. And he said, well, you know, it's 2015. But that's just lip service. If you're going to come out with clever lines, especially as a pro-female supporter and a pro-supporter of women in politics, then you better know that what you say in 2015 is going to have to hold true in 2019. And when somebody disagrees with you, man or woman, but in this case, a woman, then you can't go to those default tropes by saying, well, you know, she was difficult to get along with. Oh, my goodness. I mean, how many times has any woman anywhere in, you know, in business or in any other part of life have been told, you know, you're hard to get along with? Mm. Sure, when you challenge somebody and actually say no to one of their requests. So uh, it, it seems that the prime minister appears not to have seen this coming. How could that have been the case? Again, if you if you go back to that swearing-in ceremony, I mean, she was visibly upset. You know, how I have to say that when you ask me a question like this, I think the prime minister has to depend on his advisors to give him good advice, which may seem easy. You know, as, a, as an equation, give good advice, stay out of trouble. In this case, I'd have to say that the prime minister is getting bad advice. And the straw that broke the camel's back, the thing that got everything rolling here, was when he demoted her from Minister of Justice to Minister of Veterans Affairs. Everybody looked at that and they were shocked. They're, they're like, well, well, why? Why, why didn't he it? have a prepared uh, statement for that? Why would he just, again, this is a major liberal star checking off two major boxes, meaning uh, a woman and from the uh, indigenous community. So how does he make this move without justifying it? I mean, perhaps, well, that's, what, I perhaps that's what started the investigation at the Globe and Mail. 
Well, I think that anybody who looks at this and looks at politics every day saw this as a very odd thing. Yeah. And it seemed even, you know, to, to people who just don't look at politics every day but do keep up on it, that this, this was a very odd move and it seemed to have come out of the blue. Well, reporters at the Globe and Mail saw through all the messaging. And, they, you know, you just don't demote somebody from Minister of Justice, which is a very, very high-profile position, yeah. to Veterans Affairs unless there's something else going on. At what, and obviously, allegedly, what went on is that he asked her to do something for SNC-Lavalin, and she said no. Yeah. And because she went against the liberal brain trust wishes, which is just not Trudeau, but it's all his advisors around, it's Gerald Butt, it's Katie Telford, it's everybody else who was surrounding him, because they felt, well, you don't want to play the game, we're going to demote you, which is very much a, a political maneuver. You know, as soon as you disagree with the party, you might as well be on an ice floe somewhere. But as long as you stay and toe the line, then you're you're obviously kept within the fold. Well, she wasn't going to toe the line. And they said, well, we'll teach you. We'll teach you. And you can now be the Minister of Veterans Affairs and not the Minister of Justice. Well, Julie Wilson-Raybould had other plans. And she thought, well... I don't have to take this, and I don't have to sit quietly about this, and I'm really upset that uh, about what has happened, and that it goes and it, it goes against my integrity of why I went into politics, but the, in the first place. And I have to say, Scott, that this whole integrity narrative has really taken off by the average person. If you start reading the comments in a lot of these articles, especially the ones where it came out, where her resignation letter came out. People are saying, what a breath of fresh air. Here is somebody who is actually standing on her principles and not buckling just so she can stay part of the club. And the club is one of sunny ways. We are the rule of law country. We are the world's moral compass. Um, you know, and going back to Justin Trudeau promising uh, action on all 98 recommendations of the Truth and Reconciliation Report, like at what time do people just take a step backward and go, that's BS because it's impossible to do that? Well, and you know, here, here's another example whether, you know, where, where he, he thinks he can just sort of wave the wand and, and every, the magic pixie dust will fly around and everybody's happy again. But people are seeing through that. I would say that if this was the first year of of him being in the prime minister's position, that, you know, a good shot, a shirtless shot, or a flattering article yeah. in an international publication would have made all this go away. But Canadians are smarter than that. The honeymoon period is over. And nobody is buying that anymore. Nobody is buying his sunny ways image anymore. Because, you know, there's been a number of things that have undercut that image. And, you know, you and I have talked about tons of them. And yeah. this is just, this was really, aside from, you know, Omar Khadr, you know, is one. Uh, the disastrous trip to India is another. You know, comments that he made about, you know, uh, men working in rural communities, we have to be careful about that, you know, is another. But, you know, people see these things and they come and they go. Something like this, though, is a bone that the media is not going to let go of. And this, so far, since before, during, and now post um, her resignation, that this has been front page news and or at the top of each uh, newscast or is the second story. 
And the other interesting point about this is it has nothing to do with the opposition. It's not like it can be a game of he said and she said, like we're watching in the United States, where, you know, there's one on one side, one on the other, and each one has points. This, the opposition at this point really should just stand back and watch it all blow up, no? Well, I mean, the opposition has to take has to capitalize on this because, you know, when you're in a minority government and you are the opposition, what else do you have to talk about? So, of course, they're going to harp on this, but it, it, it's not as if they have any real power against it. You know, when it comes to crisis communication, Scott, 50% of the time something happens to you and the other 50% of the time you do it to yourself. And this really is a self-manufactured crisis that yeah. the Liberals started and they thought that they could put on the back burner, and they thought they could make it go away in the way they usually make things in politics go away, except they underestimated their foe. And Jody Wilson-Raybould is nobody's um, shrinking violet. And if you notice that when she has something to say, she only talks when she has something to mm-hmm. say. Mm-hmm. Other than that, she is very tight-lipped. Um, she, her, basically her face gives everything away as, as you have said before. And even if you look at their, the letter of resignation, you know, she'd like to thank all Canadians. Well, she wasn't thanking Prime Minister Trudeau, um, in any of that. So, you know, when you look at that letter, what was in it is as important as what wasn't in it. Yeah. Um, so if you're in the Prime Minister's office, what's going on right now? I'm tearing out my really nice hair. (laughs) You're messing up that new do. You know, I'm looking at my advisors and I'm saying, okay, so now what? You said that I should demote her, so I did. And had we had not been so uh, decisive and divisive, and this is just the way politics are, is, you know, you, you disagree, you're out, then we've done this to ourselves. So now they have to start quoting all sorts of letters of the law and trying to prevent any further damage that's already being done. However, the wild card in all of this is that Wilson-Raybould has hired counsel and very senior counsel about what she can say and what she can't say. So as soon as the protagonist, which is Minister Wilson-Raybould, has uh, hired a lawyer, well, you know, the game is completely changed. And so now you're going up against uh, someone that you knew was a rising star, someone that you knew was very, very smart, and that used to be on your team. So sometimes, you know, when you have somebody that is that great on your team, often people say, I wouldn't want that person to be my enemy. Well, guess what? Hmm. They are now. How does this affect the other major story that this has bumped off the front page, that being the situation with China? And, of course, the extradition of the the Huawei CFO. Canada's been standing up and saying, rule of law country, what you're doing in in China is not lawful. We're following our laws. We're following this, that, and the other. I mean, this just smacks smacks all that in the face. Well, it certainly does, and I think that if you want something to be pushed off the front page, you certainly don't want it to be replaced by by something that's that's hotter or equally as contentious. Plus, at the end of the day, the Minister of Justice has final uh, say over whether this person is extradited or not after the court case. How can we look at that person and think, well, they're going to make an impartial decision? Well, you know, this puts all of that into question in, into, in Canadians' minds. I mean, we all yeah. know that there's backrooming, and we all know that decisions are made before we even hear about the decision. And in this case, the backrooming didn't work. And you came up against somebody's high level of, of integrity. 
And those who know Jody Wilson-Raybould all talk about her intelligence and her integrity and that she is not to be trifled with. And something like this, you know, going into an election year, Scott, um, really the writ will be dropped in, you know, in a couple of months. But going into an election year, this is the last thing that the Liberals want because this is something that people can understand. This is not complicated like foreign relations. This is something that Mm. people see that somebody did something wrong, you didn't like it, you demoted her, and then she left. How do Liberals defend this? Well, it's really hard to defend it. And I think that they have to basically own up to something. But really, do you think the Liberals are going to own up to anything? No. I mean, not that any other uh, political party would act any differently. But they won't answer the the very, very simple question, which was, what did you say to her? What did you tell her? Why did she leave? So there has been no answer to that question. At the beginning of the week, Trudeau said, listen, you know, we have our differences, but the fact that she's remained in caucus speaks volumes. Well, guess what? Hmm. (laughs) So now she's left. What about the image of SNC-Lavalin in all of this? Is this someone that you want to be hitching your ride to? Well, there are thousands of people who who have and that work for them, uh, not only here in Canada, but worldwide. And you talk about them having to pay um, bribe payments in order to get certain contracts. And listen, I don't think anybody's under any delusion that maybe that's just the way international business works in certain countries, except that they got caught. And some people say, I mean, you know, SNC-Lavalin has has several issues that they've had to battle publicly in the past. They're not squeaky clean. No, they're not squeaky clean. But some people say that they're too big to fail. So is General Motors. Well, exactly. But I don't think anybody's bailing SNC-Lavalin out right now. Uh, so how bad is this heading into an election an election this fall? I think it's really bad. I think that when your main narrative, the Liberals' main narrative is all about sunny ways. We were going to provide sunny ways after the dark, gloomy reign of the Conservatives and that we were going to bring sunlight to the middle class, that we were going to open our arms to, to any and all who want to come here. And it was, a, it was a narrative that many, many Canadians embraced because they liked how it was being delivered. And it they felt liked, good. And that, yes, and they liked who was delivering it. But you know what? If you're going to have sunny ways, you better have smarts, and you better be able to back that up throughout your time in power. You know, you bring up a valid point here, Alyssa, and you said smarts. I remember having profs say, a poly poly science prof say to me before he was elected that he was vacuous, um, that he did not have the intellect that his father did. Is he constantly over-promising and under-delivering? Is he just simply not good enough for the gig? He might not be. And sometimes, you know, political parties put up somebody that is palatable, that is worth voting for. We've talked about that. He's a great front man for a band. He's a great PR person. Yeah. And then what they do is that they have the brain trust behind him, tell him what to say and tell him how he's going to say it and tell him why he's going to say it. But in this case, you know, I have to say that there's been many, many questionable decisions by the brain trust for their guy who's heading up the brand. So if you are uh, deciding that your boss, the prime minister of a country, should go to a foreign country 
India and make sure that he has outfits for several changes and photo ops throughout the day. Mm. What kind of brain trust is that? Yeah. I mean, you can blame Justin Trudeau all you want, but you have to also blame the people who are pulling the strings. And when the country voted for Justin Trudeau, he was just so much different than Stephen Harper, who didn't have that personality, even though they were trying to give him that personality by showing him singing and playing the piano, but it was too little too late. And people want to change. So, you know, I think that the original conservative um, anti-liberal narrative that came out during that election was just not ready yet. Mm. They were right, but people didn't want to believe that. But I think they would believe it now. Alyssa Freeman's been with us, public relations consultant, principal at Alyssa Freeman PR. As always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Have a great Family Day weekend. Oh, and you too. And happy Valentine's Day. What did you get them? What did I get him? I, me, with a ribbon around it. <laughs> we will leave it at that. Have a great night, Alyssa. Okay, you too. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Do you find you're as trustworthy as you were five years ago, 10 years ago? If you're middle-aged, 20 years ago, 30, 40 years ago? Apparently we're not. And who do Canadians trust the most? According to the 2019 Edelman Trust Barometer, it's their employees. Sorry, their employers. Which is very odd, considering how precarious work seems to be nowadays. Automation, downsizing, all of that sort of thing. That people would put that much trust in their employer. To talk more about all of this, Sophie Nadeau is with us, National Media Lead for Edelman Canada and on the line now. Sophie, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. I'm happy to talk to you, Scott. Tell everybody what Edelman Canada is. We're a marketing communications firm, and we have offices all over the world, uh, many of them here in Canada. And today we released our Trust Barometer, which is um, a body of work, a study that we've actually been doing for 19 years. It's a global study where we talked to 33,000 people around the world, 1,500 of them here in Canada, and we asked them about their levels of trust in key institutions, business, government, media, and NGOs. And so we launched our results today. And give us a quick breakdown here, since we're on this. Well, the headline is, there's two, it's twofold. One is, we were pleased to see trust in institutions here in Canada were up, but uh, not so happy to see that the trust gap or the trust inequality between the informed public, which we, you know, you can, for lack of a better word, call the elites, folks who have high levels of education, big incomes, uh, consume more media, that kind of stuff, and the rest of us, mass population, the gap in trust between those two groups is at an all-time high of 20 points. That's the second highest trust inequality gap in the world, just under the UK. And that's the kind of level of of, uh, trust inequality we saw in the US before Donald Trump was elected and in the UK before Brexit. My. Yeah, we're very much focused on that. And the other big news story, as you mentioned, was in a world of uncertainty and fears and concerns, it appears that people are turning to the sources closest to them, closest to home, their employer looking to them for support and trust and, a, and a, you know, stability in this environment. All right, let's go to the first part uh, first. Sure. Uh, you talked about trust in institutions. Isn't it odd that they have so much trust in institutions, yet less trust in each other? Well, so what this, this survey actually doesn't um, necessarily 
study or measure trust between Canadians. It just measures trust between Canadians and institutions. But I think what's really interesting about this study is it, it really does um, underscore the importance of trust in the system. So we found that Canadians are really worried about a couple of things. Um, first, they're pessimistic about the future. So only 34% of the mass population here in Canada think their lives will be better off in five years. That's a really low number. Um, at the same time, 50% of the mass population, so about half of us, think the system is failing, failing mm. us. Yeah, so, I mean, the mass how does this compare? Is, how does this compare to, say, the last short term, two to five years? Right, so we've definitely seen increasing concerns around the fears. For us, that polarization gap, that trust gap, is the largest one we've ever recorded. And so if you work in government or in business or in media, you know, you're, you're, you need to think about that split. I mean, we really, what we're seeing is two Canadas. We're seeing a Canada where the elites are doing well and they're happy and optimistic about the future, and the mass population who are saying, you know, they're worried. And what are they worried about? And I think you mentioned it, actually, in, in your chat about school closures. Um, people uh, are worried that automation is going to affect their jobs. They're worried that they're not getting proper training to remain employable. They're worried about the impact of trade negotiations and internationalization of economies on their everyday lives. And so that's what's fueling uh, the gap, we think. So how, uh, uh, how concerning is it that this, uh, this appears to be constantly declining, general trust? General trust? Well, actually, so that's actually not accurate. So we, in fact, in previous years to this year, we were actually watching a cratering of trust, especially in the United States with the election of Donald Trump. So it's, it's very interesting to watch. And this year, we've actually seen a bump up. So things are looking a little bit better in terms of trust in institutions. And in the past, you know, again, people were just concerned that the system wasn't actually doing anything for them. They didn't find any kind of benefit in it, and so they were having a difficult time trusting it. Um, the other really interesting thing that happened this year is we study um, news engagement, so how people actually consume news like your show. And in uh, last year, f- about 50% of Canadians said that they were disengaged completely checking the news less than once a week. And in, in the last year, actually, that number has come up quite a bit, and more and more Canadians are actually looking for credible sources of information so they can sort of find their way through so the, pendulum the complexities is, of life. The pendulum is swinging back in the sense that now these things are becoming top of mind and, and, and now resonating with Canadians. Yeah, I mean, Canadians are still very worried by a large measure. Like 71% of Canadians are worried that fake news is going to be weaponized in our system for bad for bad things, right? right? But by and large, Canadians do seem to be, um, you know, wanting to participate uh, and consume, uh, you know, in an effort to, to really, you know, be involved in the process. And I think, you know, for us, the takeaway here is, um, well, first of all, if you're a politician in this, com- in this country, the, this survey is definitely a wake-up call. You know, if you're not talking to and discussing the things that the mass population cares about, hmm. if they can't see, uh, you know, good in their future... We're gonna have we're gonna have some interesting results in our in our elections. That's where the term that kind of thing, right? That's where the term populism. You know, that's one of the reasons it's yeah. on the increase. I guess it, it's certainly one of the things that we're looking at. I mean, it's not the only thing that drives populism, and of course, campaigns matter and how politicians show up matters. But you know, trust is the cornerstone of of how our society. It's like the glue of society, right? And if we don't have that. Um, you know, we're going to have some issues. So, but I mean, what we find the most interesting is a huge opportunity for employers to connect with their employees, right? Because let's say you're an employee, you don't trust the government and you don't think the government's doing anything for you. Well, 
you know, you're, you may actually find more support uh, for the things that you care about with your employer. And, 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 we've, mm. and our study actually shows that Canadians are interested in working with employers who have values and who stand up for their employees and, and who, um, who help them. So you're saying that that, tru- issues. that trust, and we'll get into the employment angle uh, here in a sec, but in more in com- yeah. they have more in common with their employer, therefore uh, trust them more. Yeah, I think well, well we're, I think our assessment of this, and again, you know, the data is available for everybody to take a look at. Just come over to Edelman.ca/trust, and we we've been posting stuff all day. Our assessment is that the world is crazy, and people are looking to cl- sources close to home to try and find right. stability. What about the Donald Trump? Comfort. What about the Donald Trump <laughs> factor here? When his yeah. presidency started, how much did this start swaying either way? Oh, well, last year we saw a total cratering of trust. And it happened in most markets. And Canada was actually in the distrusting category generally. And we've bumped up into a neutral category now, which is great. I think the most powerful uh, impact that Trump has had on the Canadian environment is, uh, it's my assessment that just his whole um, effort to to uh, attack the news media in the U.S., mm-hmm. I think has maybe driven some of the Canadian desire to do, behave differently in this country. So the pendulum is swinging back. People are looking for what they feel has been lacking there. Here in Canada, yes, yeah. that is true. Yeah, and it's encouraging. It's just that we were very surprised that the polarization gap is so large. I mean, why is it like that? And um, and so it's, it's, it's an important conversation to have as a country, and I think that uh, people need to kind of look at the data and sort of see, okay, well, how can we better connect with the mass population? Maybe it's, you know, if you're an employer, then maybe it is, like trying to work on those issues that Canadians say in the data they care about, like pay equity and, and access to training. And you think about the people who lost or who are in the process of losing their jobs at GM, for instance, you know, like you can understand why people would be stressed out right. about the future. So it's, it's a bit tricky. I remember uh, before the last provincial election, um, there was a, a poll done about what was important to Ontarians. And then uh, the, the current government gave out what their list was, and it was completely different. You could see the disconnect. And, and, and again, I mean, I think we've seen this in the United States, uh, where some still don't understand why the president got in as opposed to the other person. And, and it really has nothing to do with individual politics. It's, it's just about change and... and, and, and uh, um, you know, anti-establishment thinking, and you want they want someone in there that was going to disrupt, and and that's certainly what happened. But it's amazing that considering how precarious work is, or the way mm-hmm. we view it now with automation and all those things that you were talking about, that because yeah. that is involved in our day-to-day life, that's what we that's what we become more connected to. Yeah, it's weird. So you'd think that there there's a disconnect there in the data, yeah. but what the way we look at it is there's there's two. Your brain can do two things. It can be both at a macro level, sort of big picture. You can be worried about job loss. You can be worried about automation. You can be worried about trade deals and how that will impact the Canadian economy. And at the same time, you can be trusting of your individual employer. And so it, 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 I think it does paint a very optimistic picture about how people feel at work. And, you know, like I said, an opportunity for business to show up with purpose and to do the things that, that Canadians want them to do. Another really interesting stat that, that came up in this year's trust barometer is, you know, people expect CEOs of major companies, about four and five Canadians say CEOs need to take the lead on change rather than waiting for the government to impose it on stuff like pay equity, on stuff like discrimination, on stuff like proper training for the jobs of tomorrow. So, you know, you could, you could you know, this idea that, that people don't have trust in government and the polarization that's driving maybe politics in Canada right now, 
is happening at the same time where people are looking to business actually to lead. And, you know, I mean, there's a conversation we can have there. Like, is that something Canadians want? I think that in this study, they're telling us, yes, they really want companies to step up and take care of their people. That's fascinating. What should, you talked about uh, what politicians can learn from this. What should politicians take from this? Because again, you know, uh, comparing the situation to the United States, it seems, uh, although the Republicans won, the Democrats still don't understand why. They still don't get it. What, uh, (laughs) What should politicians take from this information from your survey? Well, first of all, really important for the informed public, right? The elites, however you want to, we call them the informed public. There's a lot of different ways to frame that group. But they can't live in their, in their you know, wonderful world with everything being fine and, you know, just chilling in their trusted environment. It's not enough. It's just simply not enough. Um, a lot, when you look at their technological change, you know, it's oftentimes you'll hear people who, who, are, who are very fortunate talk about how exciting the future is, that innovation is going to drive our economy. But the reality is, is that many Canadians don't see, they don't see that. Yeah. They, they are stressed out about that. And so, you know, politicians... They don't see the sunny ways. <laughs> well, now, I'm not going to talk <laughs> about particular political parties, but certainly a couple, I mean, scandals certainly don't help trust levels right. at all. And, and this is traditionally seen through the survey in the last 19 years. Like, part of the reason why people have eroded trust in government specifically is this idea that they don't believe government's working for them. Right. The system is failing them, right? Um, so politicians really do need to think about how they're going to engage that mass population. Now, how they do that is an entirely separate question. And, mm-hmm. you know, the way Donald Trump did it was the way he did it. Yeah. And, you know, how Canadian politicians do it is an entirely different conversation, and I think it's one we should be having. I mean, you know, it's, can the informed public connect with the mass? I think that's the most important question we have facing us this year and headed into the federal election. It's interesting. The last couple of elections, whether they're provincial or federal, all we hear from all candidates are they they all talk about the middle class, but they talk about those trying to join the middle class. They don't talk about the people who are already there, who are the majority of the people, silent majority, who really really fund everything. It, It seems as if we've forgotten uh, we, we've concentrated so much on the edges, we've forgotten about the silent majority. Is that accurate? I, you know, I mean, uh, you're more opinionated than I am, for sure. I, that feels hey, like I never me. let I, the facts get in the way of a great story here, Sophie. I mean, I, if we were talking about school closures, you and I could go all day, because I have opinions <laughs> about that, too. But uh, the, what I'm trying, I, think, I think that you're right. I think that we just, the success of our country, in my view, depends on our ability to understand each other better. And if you ignore people who aren't you and you ignore their troubles and you ignore their fears and think that you'll be able to still be successful, what this data today tells us is that you're playing with fire. You have to acknowledge the mass population. You have to understand what their problems are. And you have to actually do something to make their lives better. Because if you don't, you know, clearly we can see from other markets, you know, stuff happens, right? So it's definitely for us an eye-opener. And, you know, this is why we do this research year over year is because trust is the glue that holds our society together. And it's really important that we do everything, not just to protect it, but to grow it. Well said. Sophie Nadeau has been with us, National Media Lead for Edelman Canada. Uh, the writing is on the wall. Who do Canadians trust the most? They feel they have more in common with their employers. Sophie, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Fascinating. Mm-hmm.
My pleasure. Have a great day. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.